it's just things in the book. And I go, well, what about this? Like logical fallacies or like draw me a tramalfadorian. You're going to make tramalf... Look, I, I even... You messed me up. I had it. Tralf... Amadorians. Tralfamadorians. Tralfamadorians. I had I had this Tralfamadorians. Don't Tralfamadorians. just don't say it anymore. You just point to me and say aliens, and I say Tralfamadorians. Hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, episode thirty-two. In this episode, we are talking about Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five or the Children's Crusade: A Duty Dance with Death. I am Ryan, and with me is my good buddy and fellow host, Jacob. Yes, welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, our little book club, book cult, book something or other. This is going to be a fun episode. Yes. We're getting, we're kind of getting back in, oh, you know, knocking the dust off, the rafters getting back in. If you were with us last episode, it was a nice, relaxing, you know, no, no, uh, no book in particular that we were reading, just kind of reflecting on the past year, telling you guys kind of what we're, uh, what we're doing moving forward, but... Yeah, so this is, I guess, officially year two? Yeah. We, we're in year two. This is, this is year two. Year two, season two. This yeah. is where things take a little bit of a darker turn. We have a little bit more character development, and uh, it's less sort of buildup of our past leading to this point. Right, yeah. And then we're going to leave with a big cliffhanger, and then we're going to come into season three and just flip everything on its head, and there's going to be time travel and uh, talking animals. I think that's kind of the... The trajectory that our, yeah. uh, that our show is taking. For sure. And it starts today. But no, at least at least for now, we, we may get into some more crazy stuff uh, in the future. But, but for today, pretty traditional episode. Pretty normal. As far as that goes. We're starting off season two right uh, with an interesting book. But uh, yeah, pretty traditional episode. We're going to tell you a little bit about the author, Kurt Vonnegut. Surprised we never got him in the first year. Yeah. So I guess this is... As close as we can get on that, we'll tell you a little bit about him, give you a brief, and I mean brief, summary of the book, and then we're just going to get into it. Uh, we may have some questions, thoughts about the book that we want to kind of chew over, and uh, we'll talk about that for a little while. Then we'll get into our patented three-tier four if we're locking the book in a in a meat locker and, and bombing the city with which it's in, five if it's getting abducted and put into a zoo in space, and then, uh, of course, we'll tell you about what we have coming up on our show after that. Could we also potentially crash into a mountain? We could. And kill everybody around it, but not it, and then send it to a hospital for a Yeah, if it's in a plane. Yeah. yeah. And then its wife. Okay. Its wife book would be driving in and a car she, and in a car dies. accident with the book, in little like in little book world. Yeah, but not of the, the car accident. She dies of CO2, which is more tragic. It's than, grim. Yeah. It's very it grim. So it's a very positive and uplifting book. Exactly. So if you haven't read this book, it's kind of weird to listen to a podcast about a book you haven't read. Suggest you hit pause, go spend a few hours, read it, pretty short, good read, and then come back and listen to our discussion so you can sit here and go, hmm, these guys are smart, or real, hmm, these guys are idiots. Real quick, because the theme behind, I guess, your choice on this book was, wow, I, how have I not read this yet? This is my impersonation of you. How have I not read this yet? Why do uh, I seem so haphazard and idiot? I don't, I don't know. Maybe you need to do some like in, some introspection on uh, on what image you're giving off to to other people in this world. No, maybe but it's you know it's one of those books I'm books kidding. I'm ashamed that I haven't read. Well, yet, you know, it's video. one of those books that I feel like uh, at least those who 
you know, kind of occupy the literary space, whether they're readers or writers or whatever. Yeah. Like it's, you know, it's it's a well-known enough book that if you haven't read it, you've heard about it. Sure. Yep. So I wonder if you had to go off the top of your head, what percentage of people running across our podcast seeing this will have read the book versus those who haven't? Uh, Granted, now again, these are people that are, I would guess, within that sort of sphere of reading or you yeah. know, book podcast um folk i'd say we're upwards of 40 percent. okay I, I don't know exactly how high but i would say 40 percent. okay i'd probably go a little bit higher i'd probably say around 50 55 okay i guess i would say i think half or more than half of the people that would that would be kind of in the sphere of podcasts that stumble on this have probably read this book i would argue in addition which may not be much of an argument okay that this is the most popular book from a number of people who have read it standpoint of anything else that we've we've ever done on the podcast. Hmm. That's interesting because I guess our even our more notable books are a little bit less available as far as yeah. like your opportunities to read them without just kind of going out on your own. Like this, you know, this in some ways is prescribed literature and English classes, whether it's in high school or college or at some level. So there's some people yeah. that just read this because they were forced to when they were 16 or something. Exactly, so, exactly my point. And, you know, I can't really say that about a lot of the other things. So yeah, maybe you might be right about that. Yeah, I mean, probably pretty close with A Farewell to Arms, but yeah. I think this one is more required reading than, than, than Hemingway. And Hemingway has several other novels that are probably more required reading than A Farewell to Arms. So, yeah, I think uh, I think that's interesting. Yeah, that's um, fair. All right, we're drifting away. Let's yeah, get we back are, we here. Are, we are. So, tell us about Kurt Vonnegut, Man, Kurt Vonnegut. Myth, I, I Maverick. Have, I have a whole lot of stuff, and I'm going to hit just like the high points of okay. of what I can. And I think throughout our podcast, you can save the rest. Gonna, you could save the rest for if we come back to Cat's Cradle or something yeah. later. Galapagos, so, maybe. Vonnegut was born uh, in Indianapolis in 1922. Uh, he went to Cornell um, to study, um, I cannot read my own writing. Oh, chemistry. Chemistry. That's okay. right. Then he enlisted in the Army, got moved over to uh, Carnegie, um, and then eventually the University of Tennessee, where he got his uh, degree in mechanical engineering. Then he went, uh, fought in World War II, as we know. He was actually a POW and was captured during the uh, Battle of the Bulge um, and was imprisoned in a slaughterhouse in Dresden. In Dresden yeah. Did like, you know, so the beginning of the book where he's like, you know, a lot of this is true. Uh, a lot of it actually did happen to him. Um, so after the war, then, um, actually, one other thing before I move to the war, he was chosen as the leader of uh, his little group uh, when they were when they were uh, imprisoned in Dresden. Okay, because he knew some German, I guess he, he was like a third generation, uh, like American uh, family that had immigrated from Germany. Sure. And uh, so he knew some German. And uh, he was beaten and stripped of his uh, of, of his leadership because of uh, he, 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 quote, told uh, German soldiers what he would do to them once the Russians arrived. <laughs> OK. And they didn't appreciate that. So I can imagine. Uh, so the University of Chicago uh, came about after uh, after he left uh, the war and after he was released uh, from prison uh, or being a prisoner of war, I should say. 
Uh, he studied anthropology. Then he went on to do a bunch of random stuff. He owned a Saab dealership at one point. He was a technical writer at GE. He was a volunteer firefighter. Uh, and Cat's Cradle, um, probably his his other biggest book, maybe even bigger than this one, um, was accepted as his thesis uh, for anthropology um, from the University of Chicago. Uh, he worked for Sports Illustrated for a short period of time, which uh, I believe is now ending. Uh, so it goes. And uh, mm-hmm. he almost gave up on writing until he was offered a job at the Iowa Writers Workshop, which is a really big deal. Uh, and he was married several times, had like seven kids, lifelong smoker of Paul Malls. He said once that it was a classy way to commit suicide. And uh, gradually, slowly, he died on April 11th, 2007, after falling down a flight of stairs at his house and suffering massive head trauma. Well, that's, I mean, that was an unfortunate end to that story. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, wow. So it goes. So it goes. All right. Um, So what's this book about? You owe us a summary now. Yeah, a brief, dirty summary. So Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. It's the story of Billy Pilgrim, a man suffering from trauma due to the events of World War II, and in, in particular, the firebombing of Dresden. In the story, Billy is unstuck from time and sees all events of his life in different orders and fashions while also being transported by the Tralfamadorians. This is the first time. Tralfamadorians. Tralfamadorians. Can we just call them Aliadorians? Tralfam... No, we're going to we're Tra- say Tralfamadorians the whole time. Tralians? Tralfamadorians. While being kidnapped by the Tralfamadorians <laughs> and shown... Uh, the, the the limitless sort of uh, fourth dimensional view of time. It wasn't that short. I so, would have just. That's a like, lot in a book, though. So it's a weird dude that time travels gets abducted by. Does aliens he time travel? Okay, and well, hold on. Goes to war. Well, okay, obviously. Well, that that's a big question. That is that's a big like question. We'll get to that. Question. We'll get to that. We'll get yeah. we'll get to that first. I want to talk about the the first thing. How do you feel about the kind of like, obviously, we have this setup where Vonnegut's telling us kind of the, okay, so this is, most of it's kind of real, it's it's, it's mostly true, or yeah. it's kind of true, obviously not the, the alien parts, but how do you feel kind of going into this book knowing that this character that we get isn't necessarily like a self-insert for Vonnegut, but it's kind of a fictionalized way of expressing maybe thoughts, feelings, and just this overall sort of experience in... A work of fiction. Um. So, I can't. I can't answer your question necessarily directly because coming into this book, I didn't really uh, understand quite how science fictiony this book was. Sure. Um, yeah. I, I like literally. I mean, you know that I like to keep myself ignorant so I can I can experience things right. you know without preconceived notions. So. I really was taken aback by uh, by that whole thing, but you you have like a a theme here of like metafiction, right? Where like the the book is aware of its its own existence. You sure. get that in in chapter one, and uh, yeah, immediately you're sort of like presented with this like unreliability thing, and and which you know we know that this is this is fiction going into it with elements of you know real life experience. So like I was. I was fine with it. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes fiction 
can tell the truth of a situation better than the facts of a situation can. Sure. And I think that's what Vonnegut is trying to sort of express here through the his stylistic choice and even some of his like thematic choices yeah. like throughout. So I don't know. I I, my, I enjoyed that. My immediate thought was that in doing so and kind of like sharing, you know, a lot of what you were assume are kind of his thoughts, feelings, and experiences through this sort of fictional lens, you allow sort of a more creative way of getting the reader in that mindset instead of just saying like he was traumatized by it. Right. This is right. how he was traumatized. You know, you bring in this whole element of just surrealist sort of experience with the Tralfamadorians and just his own nonlinear, you know, nature of getting back and forth with all these events in his life. And it's, I think that that's a more potent way of getting you to feel that than to say, you know, you're constantly kind of reflecting on all these things in your life because you feel the survivor's guilt and you yeah. have all of this trauma from this experience and it's doing all these, you know, it's, I don't know. I, I liked it because I thought it was more effective in that means of making you feel not, not the confusion. I mean, there were, you, you do obviously feel that sort of lost element of, uh, of Billy's confusion in it all, where it's kind of like he's just a passenger. You know, you get a lot of the free will versus fate whenever yeah. he's with the Tralfamadorians, and he's just he's kind of along for the ride in this. And you do kind of get that hopelessness or that that feeling a lot more so than if it were just a more on the nose type novel, where it was just a story of someone traumatized in the events following World War II and how it affects his life. Right, and and I think from. Vonnegut's perspective too as an actual war survivor it also acts as sort of a barrier um in which he could have expressed like the trauma that that he went through without other people who were going through that you know to say like you know you don't have to whine about it or like you know we all had a similar experience it was all terrible or sure. you know whatever it is so by injecting these other um, stylistic choices that he did and, and creating different situations around the character of, of Pilgrim, um, I think also a allowed him to maybe avoid some criticism in, in a way. Um, that's and fair. that's total speculation on, on my point or my part. But I, th I think that does, it is a potential, you know, utilization as well. Yeah. Um, so, Man, there's just there's so much I, I wrote down for this this book, and there's a lot of different things, a lot of different themes. Some of which I really now, I really liked. This yes. was, and I I don't know why I'm even asked. This was obviously your first read of the book, right? Yes, you had never read it before. Nope, nope. So this was, I think, my third read. Okay, of this, I had read it previously. I want to say mid or early twenties, and okay. then I, I read it last year, right before we actually started the the podcast. This was right. the this was we both kind of were like, you know what, let's just practice. So, whatever you're reading right now, or pick up a book that's quick, that's easy to read, read through it, and then we'll have like kind of a practice. We'll sit down and we'll talk about the books yeah. like that. And Slaughterhouse Five was the book that I chose last year for that. So it was it was interesting having read it so recently and then rereading it again. Uh -huh. um, you know you. I'm trying to remember back to my first read of this book because, like you said, you like to kind of go into things, uh, not blindly, but just sort of uninformed as to whatever else is going yeah. on. And so all of the the weirdness of the book kind of hits you. Yes. I've, it feels like in that first read. And I will say, like, coming back after the fact, like, knowing all the weird stuff and all this all that's going on, the most 
potent thing is just kind of um, analyzing all of that in a lens of just like trauma or stress or yeah. anxiety or all these yeah. other things. And it actually just, I remember reading it last year, you know, having not read it for six, seven years previously, mm-hmm. it was kind of like, oh, this was, you know, my first initial thought was like, this is a pretty weird book, you know, yeah. here's, here's yeah. all that happens. And then on the second read through of it, it's just, it's more of a, not, not like a nihilist, but just, it, it has a lot more of a kind of somber feel to it when you read through it again yeah. for the second time. And I, I don't know, I was just kind of wanted to see your thoughts knowing that this was kind of your first read through of it and how much of that, just sort of the strangeness of it sort of was the, the, I don't know, the majority of kind of what stuck out in your mind. Yeah, I think uh, I think the way that he sets up the first chapter with the the narrator like yeah. sort of bringing awareness to the situation and uh, the the writing of the book itself um, that I think got me in the mentality that things are not going to be you know necessarily they're I th- they're always coherent but not non linear and you know things are are going to be strange no. and so. I came into the book, you know, with with that expectation just because of the way that that it started. Um, but I, I, I didn't have any problem like getting into the theme of, yeah, I think there is sort of like a pseudo nihilism to it. Um, and I did read the the entire book really through a lens of trauma. And I think part of that is because I'm reading all these other war books. Yeah. And, you know, I know that the underlying narrative is is really around the the Dresden bombing and the experience of war. Sure. So I brought my like my lens to that and I was able to to key into that pretty quickly and not get distracted like, oh, is this a science fiction book about aliens or time sure. travel or, it's, you know. Now that's the thing too like reading through this. It's always you know, like we said I guess earlier, this is this is prescribed reading in a lot of ways to mm-hmm. high school age kids or maybe early college and I couldn't imagine reading this at 16 and getting anything really out of it other than just how weird it was. Yeah. And granted, I wasn't the most, you know, when I was 16, I'm sure I wasn't the most erudite when it came to breaking <laughs> down and understanding fiction, but it's just, it's strange to me. Like I, I, yeah. I, I can understand the value for why it is sort of required reading in a lot of ways, but it just seems to me that the people that have probably read it or maybe remember bits of it reading in high school and just the, the way that they would view the book versus, you know, if you picked it up and read it in your thirties or later and kind of understood a little bit more of the, um, the elements behind it with, with, with trauma and with loss and with dealing with this and with dealing with stress and with the idea of, non-linearity of time or the idea of free will versus fate you know there's a lot of there's a lot of heavy stuff that's kind of persistent in this book that i just i imagine like a you know a high school kid reading and and not really getting as much out of it as they could yeah i think i think your your average person uh your average high school kid is is probably going to do exactly what you just said just read this and go well this is freaking weird and why would anybody you know want to read this and it doesn't make any sense um you know, but on the other hand, I, I think when you are in a classroom setting or a book club setting and you start to unpack these ideas of, you know, what are what are the aliens really? What is time travel really uh, in this book? And 
once you start to look at that, then, you know, I think as a kid, you start to understand that, you know, literature works on multiple levels, that sometimes you have these plot devices that are not exactly what they seem. And you start to see sure. the cleverness in, in some of these things and read things differently, whereas a lot of novels are very straightforward. You know, a lot of the things that we've read for the podcast have been very straightforward, even the weirder ones. Sure. Um, I would even say, like, think about, like, 100 Years of Solitude, right? Like, that was a bizarre book in its in its construction, but it was extremely linear in its chronology, right? right. And, and, the, and the bizarre elements of it were meant to be taken literally yeah. in a lot of ways. It was, right. It's just in a surrealist way, whereas this is more symbolic. Right. So, you know, I, I think that it's... It certainly, I think, would be a difficult read for for a high school kid, and and you really would have to think about some of those things to, yeah. to I think, find value in it. So, it probably does lend itself to to being a better read whenever you're an adult. Sure, I would think. Um, so when you've had a little bit of time to grapple with the own idea of sort of looking back at at your own past and your own sort of moments and playing out things within your head. For sure, and and like. You know, I'm cer- certainly you know kids ha- go through traumatic experiences. Absolutely, like there 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 are more kids out there than than there should be that that have gone through something terrible when they were young. Um, but by and large, like you know, when you're in high school, you haven't you haven't experienced uh, death in in a real close way. You haven't experienced uh, you know marriage and insecurity and you know questioning religion like a lot of the ideas that that you have are adopted from your parents and you haven't yet started to branch out yeah well just to develop off of that yeah to assess the value of of those things so i think some of those themes too that are in this book are probably a little a little bit lost and so one of the things that that is a big theme throughout this obviously is like Christianity. And, um, I, I can, I can appreciate the conversation, but I didn't see that as a major theme. And I actually found it a bit annoying that it, that it was interjected in a few ways because I felt like yeah. it, it took away from some of the other things that were going on in this book. What did you think about the, uh, the, the Christian themes throughout and, you know, specifically things like, uh, the comment when Lot's wife looked back on, uh, Gomorrah or Sodom, whichever one she was leaving and turned into a pillar of salt. And he's, he was like, how human is that? Uh, and, you know, talking about trying to like humanize Jesus into like a bum. And I thought about the, the uh the literal bum uh soldier that died uh you know in the uh in the train car and stuff yeah what what did you think about like the interjection of of religion and christianity into this did did it jump out at you as a, like a major theme no i mean it was it it just i felt like it was a means of like common imagery to kind of like draw on like yeah. for example what you said with the the pillar of salt just the idea of I guess the background of that story is they're they're leaving. You know, it's the story of Lot, and I don't know how much yeah. of that. I I only kind of have a, a cursory sort of remembrance of of some of these uh, biblical stories. But you know, God tells them, or they're they're allowed to to leave, but God tells them they can't look back. Right? right. They yep. can't look back and see. And Lot's wife does, and she obviously gets turned into a pillar of salt. And you know, he kind of reflects upon that as though it's like looking back. 
it doesn't really do anything. It's not really beneficial, especially like in this instance of like trauma, like looking back and reflecting back on like everything that happens in Dresden. Yeah. It's like not a beneficial, it's, it, it's just a source of pain, but it's kind of our humanity within us that always wants to kind of like look back and draw on these things in our lives to kind of move forward. And so I get that. Like yeah. I, I can understand that comparison. It, it didn't really jump out me at me in any way as being like a, uh, like a fundamental, like it, it, it didn't jump out as though I was going to pull any sort of religious, like underlying, like seek out religion for uh, help in dealing with this. That that never really kind of popped up to me. It was just more, like you said, I mean, you know, the bomb on the, on the train, it was just more kind of like allegorical, but things that I guess, when you think about the time this book was written, it's, they're, they're allegories that I guess are really familiar, like in people's yeah. consciousness. Yeah. It's something to relate to. Because there's not a lot else in this book that you can relate to. I mean, not everyone can can relate to the the, the trauma of World War II or right. being, you know, abducted by Tralfamadorians. I got it right that time. Tralians. You know, there's there's, uh, it's just kind of that other level of relatability to the reader, I guess, or at least just relatability and communication. It didn't really seem, you know, to me as though it was like a super central part of the book, though. Yeah, I, I, but not like terribly distracting or anything. No, I I think so. Vonnegut was was a humanist and an, an atheist, agnostic. He was all sorts of like weird, uh, non traditional yeah. things. Matter of fact, he was like the he was the president of the American Humanist uh, of America or something. Uh, Seems redundant. The American Humanist. Oh, sorry. Of the American Humanist Association. Hey, the American Humanist well, of so America. I, I I had the acronym in my head and I yeah. was trying to sound it out. It's all good. Uh, so or the Association of yeah. Humanists in America. So I I think I, I, yeah maybe that was it. Whatever it is. Uh, and so he was the president of that. Uh, and so I think that part of that was just sort of injecting his his like sort of religious beliefs or disbelief in there. Yeah. Although I do think that there is probably something to be said for uh, losing that sort of belief during a time of war and, and kind of wrapping Absolutely. into tra- trauma. But I wanted to tie this over to my thought in this. Hang on here. No, I'm just going squinty my, eyes. My, because... my thought on Kilgore Trout. Okay. All right. Our, our, our fake science fiction author... From the book. Yeah. So Vonnegut was the leader of the humanists after. After. Guess. Take a guess. What other famous writer do you think would have would have been the the science fiction writer? Yes. Is it Asimov? Asimov. Yes. It has to go. All things lead back to Asimov. They were they apparently were were good friends and associates. I feel like I read that somewhere. Uh, we might have talked about it with Asimov, actually. Um, but I was kind of thinking as I was reading that Kilgore Trout is a little nod to Isaac is, Asimov. Is a little bit of a uh, little bit Asimov. I could see guy that. that has good ideas but really bad execution. Yeah, mm-hmm. I could see that. I immediately, like, literally, as soon as as soon as they started introducing him, was it Rosewater or whatever? Do you think? Do you think that's a callback to maybe? Because again, Asimov would have been writing around the time when Vonnegut was you know, coming out post-war. Yeah. Do you think there's a lot of, of like, again, so much of this book, 
and Billy in particular, when we look, you know, not everything, but some things you kind of have to look through the lens of, okay, is this Vonnegut? Yeah. Just sort of stapling on a little part of himself here, or is this fictionalized? Yeah, I mean, it's it could be either, but... It feels like it could be... I could definitely see your your point of it being Asimov, because if they're close, and yeah. maybe Asimov was uh, an inspiration for him, because it doesn't seem like Vonnegut... It doesn't seem like prior to the war, I mean, I you know, you read up on him a little more than I did. It doesn't seem like prior to the war he was really writing. No. And he certainly wasn't going to school for that. So yeah. it might have been an influence from Asimov or something, you know. Or I could be completely off base here and, and, and somebody out there is just going, no, you're an idiot. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. I just I just thought it was it was somewhere my brain went. And then let's talk about I the was, name, though. Kilgore Trout. Is yes. that not like a A plus? Nine out of ten author name. It is also an Asmovian like name. Kilgore Trout. Yeah, it is. It is greatness. And apparently, this guy makes cameos in some of his other books. Like what? From what I was reading. Yeah, I heard that was a big thing too. Because there was a I forget which character was. There's a character in the book that is uh, a you know in another Vonnegut book too. Yeah, it's Trout. It's Trout. I read it. I know it's a thing. Okay, um, I believe you. So yeah, that was that was my that was my weird uh, my weird trout thought. Um, but I, I want to talk about Billy Pilgrim for a minute because I I struggled with this character. Yeah, and I got I got an impression after I was done reading the book that I have no idea what this guy is about. Like I feel like I don't understand him as a human being or a personality even other than the things that he went through right. and those, those situations. And, you know, through that you understand something about why he is the way that he is. Sure. But I think of any book that we read, I feel more disconnected from our protagonist, from our protagonist. Absolutely. Anything yeah. Else. But I think that in, in some ways, I think that's the point because when you look back at the, I guess the sort of combatant ideas of free will versus fate, right? Mm -hmm. This whole process when he goes with the, the trial Famidorians and just, he's hopping back and forth and he even says, you know, when he proposes to his wife, it's kind of like, well, you know, this is the, the whole expanse of time. It's not something, you know, we ex experience time linearly, but yeah, time is, can be experienced, you know, all at once and all stages of it. And it just, it seems to me someone that's kind of resigned to the fate, that is like put in front of him. And so he doesn't really express a lot of agency after, yep. after the fact it's just kind of, he's sort of along for the ride on this and, and yeah, so it's less, it's less that we get to connect to the character and the decisions that he makes. And, uh, I guess just sort of his thoughts and feelings on things and more so just with here is the events that happen to our character. And we're just kind of along for the ride. You know, we can't really yeah. change anything, but, uh, yeah, it does make for a little bit, it does make for a little bit difficult uh, of a time just trying to really connect with Billy. Yeah. Which is, you know, I've, I've said it before on the show plenty of times, one of the biggest things for me when we're reading, uh, you know, narrative fiction is the characters and primarily, you know, whoever our protagonist is. Like, I want to know what they're going through. I want to feel what they're going through. I want to, I want to, you know, connect with them on, you know, that level and that was one of the struggles that I had, uh, especially the first time I read this book, or well, last the you know last year when I read this book, and yeah, and even more so the second time through, knowing kind of what we've read up until this point and what I typically 
like more than more than others in in the books that we've done up until now. So yeah, it was it was tough. It was tough. I would I would probably echo your sentiment there that yeah, he was the most kind of disconnected protagonist that we had, but in the scope of what the book is trying to do, it didn't feel out of place. Okay. So I feel like we've been talking around, I think, the, at least for me, the biggest thing that's in this book. And so I just want to come out and say it so that we can, we can develop this conversation. And okay. I want to know immediately if you feel like this is, this is not how you feel about it. Was but, it the fact that he had a tremendous wang? With the Trophimador. Uh, I'd forgotten about zoo. that, but yeah. Because that, that, I feel, <laughs> if there were any doubts about unreliable, uh, an unreliable narrator, I felt like that was the nail in the coffin. Because I don't know if I've ever, I don't know as a man, if I've ever referred to myself as having a tremendous weighing. And not that that's necessarily false or true. Um, but yeah, just to refer to it as that and it'd be kind of, you know, just taken as fact is... But, I mean, it was the narrator referring to it. So this is like your buddy saying, like, you have a tremendous wing. Fair enough. So it's not, it's not you claiming that... Yeah. Uh, well, the, the, yeah, so I'm in my own book and my narrator said that I have a tremendous wing, so it counts. Yeah, well, fair, fair point. But uh, no, I was not going to talk about his penis. Oh, okay. Uh... Or his time in the man zoo? No. uh, Well, sort of getting there. But to me, this book and the time travel and the uh, Trailians are all about... Trophamadorians. Trailians are all about, um, you know, just being metaphor for uh, being sort of trapped and disconnected from everything that defined Billy Pilgrim as, you know, an average to useless piece of person coming into the war and really none of these things happened in in that sense but war was in and of itself like being abducted from aliens and put into an environment where you have no autonomy um you have no impact and you're learning these lessons you know like uh everything is inevitable doesn't matter what you do you are going to die or you are going to live you can run through the woods and uh and you know be well-equipped scouts um you're gonna get shot down by enemies or you can be getting beaten up in a frozen riverbed uh and laughing your ass off about it and you know captured safely as as a prisoner of war you know there are just there are things that that you can't do and so Really, to me, when you get into the the time travel stuff and and the aliens, then it it really all just is a, a way of explaining what he went through uh, and what war did to him as a person throughout his entire life. Sure, I mean you get a lot of the comparisons between his experiences with the Trophimadorians and his time when he was a POW. I mean, he's captured, he's abducted, you know he. He's not really sure what's going on. I mean, there's, yeah, there's, there is that, that connectivity there or that sort of, not juxtaposition, but yeah, I mean, just sort of explaining or at least finding a way to sort of explain the, the effect that being in this whole situation and and going through the war and going, not even just serving the war, but just, you know, being captured and being, you know, treated that way and being put in a POW camp and then 
having the whole incident of the firebombings in Dresden and then having to deal with the aftermath and having to, you know, clean up bodies and, and just sort of witnessing everything that takes place in there. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a way of not making sense, but trying to do some, trying to provide some meaning. Because I think that's one of the hardest things to see, at least whenever you see things like this happen that are kind of like precursors for, for trauma or anything, you know, even, mm-hmm. even beyond just war or, you know, mass loss of life or death or even just, you know, on an individual level is always trying to find meaning, you know, yeah. to, to, to what it is in order to help cope or in order to help sort of attach onto something beyond just saying like, well, it happened and it happens because these things happen. Like that's, right it's really hard to just embrace that idea and accept it when you've been affected so deeply by something like you have to grab on to something and you have to manufacture or find something or some anchor in your mind in order to cope with that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's interesting the process that, that Billy takes in, in sort of, Sending his consciousness, you know, getting unstuck in time when the reality of that is, is him just kind of, you know, you feel like this whole thing is way, way, way after the fact if you do it chronologically and he's just kind of like stuck reflecting on this and trying to find reasoning for why he feels the way that he does. So if if you think about like the the aliens in the context that, that I that I just sort of proposed, they offer and he um sort of recites all of these these different little sort of pieces of of advice right they say that like earthlings are are the only uh like planet out of x number that believe in free will right and um you know that everything is is happening all at once and you know it doesn't matter you know what you do everything is inevitable they talk about the uh the test pilot starting the engine and ending the universe uh, and, you know, why they wouldn't change that or uh, they don't really say why other than it's just inevitable and that's yeah. that's how things are supposed to go. But one thing, um, I, I, I actually watched a recorded lecture by uh, Vonnegut and I've got, I've got to say, I'm just, he is such an interesting guy. If, I don't know if you listen to any of, any of uh, his stuff. I've listened to a couple interviews that he did. God, it might have been 15, 20 years ago. So this was, I mean, still relatively yeah. recent, but yeah, he did seem like a like an interesting guy. He so at one point in this lecture that uh, that I watched, he referenced his uncle. Um, yeah. Have you heard about this? No. Okay. So his uncle had this this philosophy that um, that people were really bad about noticing when they're happy. And to pause in those moments and just to say, isn't this nice? Yeah. Um, and, you know, he, he in the lecture referenced, you know, just sitting out under a tree drinking lemonade one afternoon that we're just really bad about not being able to look at a moment like that. Just pause and just say, if this isn't happiness, I don't know what is. Yeah. And so that kind of came in to um, to play with with the aliens in here. And he was very clearly trying to inject, you know, some of that like sentiment. So on page 85, um, when he's when he's in the zoo, uh, he's talking about, um, you know, how they have a peaceful planet here. 
And uh, so the alien responds, um, today we do. On other days, we have wars as horrible as any you've ever seen or read about. There isn't anything we can do about them, so we simply don't look at them. We ignore them. We spend eternity looking at pleasant moments like today at the zoo. Isn't this a nice moment? And Billy res responds, yes. That's one of the things Earthlings must learn to do if, if they tried hard enough. Ignore the awful times and concentrate on the good ones. And... So you think about that, you think about like sort of the inevitability of things, you know, things are going to be what they're going to be, um, you know, God willing, like to me, it, it's, it's starts to sound like sort of bad advice coming out of war, right? Yeah. Like things you might hear when you're in a hospital ward trying to deal with PTSD or something. And, uh, you know, people are just giving you like just, mother, hey, just motherly advice. It. Just yeah, just think positively and think about all the the happy and positive things and and don't look at anything else. So I mean on one hand, you know, when when you take the anecdote about Vonnegut's actual uncle, I, one I, I I do think that that is practical good advice that we should take moments and and pause and and recognize kind of where we are um and appreciate those things even the even the small things. Um, on the other hand, the, the way that this sort of pseudo translates into, into this book, I think, like, do you think that's good advice? Should we, should we ignore the, the bad things that are happening and, and pay attention to the good things, especially the things that we can't change? We can't, you and I cannot end war in the Middle East, right? So should we just ignore them and be able to move on with, with our lives or, do we have some sort of responsibility to, to talk through those things? Now, that is a show in and of itself. <laughs> it um, is. When you think about it, I guess just the, the human ethics or human moral, or if you talk about responsibilities that we have for the, you know, as an individual towards the greater, you know, collective of, of people, what our role is in that and. I guess the easiest answer I could say is maybe uh, <laughs> okay. the most non-committal answer in the world. I think that we're predisposed as human beings to focus on negative in a higher degree than positive. And much like okay. much like Vonnegut's uncle says, you know, a lot of times we don't we don't realize in the present happy little moments, you know, unless they're overwhelmingly, you know life-changing or sort of monumental things, but like little day-to-day -day instances of just nice, happy, good moments tend to go unnoticed. Mm -hmm. And you don't really notice those things until something sad or tragic or bad happens. And then sure. you retroactively sort of reflect on those things. So it is tough because, yeah, I feel like in a way, I don't know if we're hardwired that way or if it's just something that has evolved over you know, millennia of human beings dealing with bad things in, in sort of, you know, well, we need to be kind of on the lookout for bad things or, you know, you want to focus on these negative things so they don't leave your sight and don't get worse or don't, you know, get closer to you. Right. Meanwhile, you know, on the other hand, you're sort of passing by the, the little small happiness, you know, that, that goes on. So to answer your question, no, I don't think that we should just, ignore um 
the bad things that are happening around us. Cause I think, you know, as a, you know, as a society or as a global human, you know, population, or even if you're talking about, you know, a, a household or something like that, if you ignore bad things, I think that only begets more bad things because, you know, bad things tend to not solve themselves or most things tend to not solve themselves. Right. So I think that not paying attention to it is not, helpful but i do think that it's it's about understanding the impact that you can have on a on a negative situation and right. understanding that feeling powerless is okay and that you do what you can and a lot more mental energy can be spent on the positive influences or the positive things in your life and i think that leads to an overall healthier consciousness and human being i i think it's it's interesting when when you think about it that you know yeah i I think you do have some sort of responsibility to address things you know especially things that are right in front of you and this this idea made me think about the horse cart scene uh, toward the end of the book yeah so pilgrim's laying in the back and he's just sunning and having a lovely time at one point even says that it might be his favorite memory of his entire life. Yeah. Meanwhile, in front of the cart that he's having the greatest day of his life ever because mm-hmm. he's no longer a POW and they have shit and, you know, whatever, they are literally walking the horses to death. These horses are bleeding from their mouths. Their hooves are cracked. They're, they're thirsty. They're, they're starving to death. Yeah. And they're not paying attention to that, that thing that's right in front of them. Then you get the uh, German with the obstetricians that come walking by and they're horrified that the, uh, the way that the Americans are treating the horses yeah. that are drawing the cart. Meanwhile, they just ended a war where they just murdered millions of fucking people. And so you have this like multi-layered sort yeah. of little situation where people selectively ignored the, the bigger things that were going on outside of them and focused only on their little moment to the detriment of, of something else that they could have had an impact on. Sure. So to me, like when you look at that, that little anecdote, like I, I really do think the aliens are just full of like the worst advice. I, I think that there, yeah. there are little things that you could be like, oh, that's nice. And then once you start looking at them and, and really like dissecting them, it's all the bad things that it's, you should, like, shouldn't do, but well, are yeah, attracted I mean, to. I mean, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, when yeah, when you talk about free will versus fate, and if you accept that you don't have free will, then it leads to just terrible things because you have no agency in anything. Well, I yeah. did this because I'm supposed to do it. I had no control over it. Right. People that are governed by fate tend to be worse people i don't know if that's necessarily the fairest description of it but when i think about the idea of someone doing something because they feel they have no agency in it that i i would not want to associate with that person i feel like they yeah would, they would lean towards worse things yeah i mean you can't really look at it and say that oh yeah these the the aliens are these arbiters of this incredibly you know sound advice and wisdom the one thing that kind of is pulled out of there to me that's interesting is the idea of nonlinear time. Yeah. But more less less on like an individual level of, well, your life, here's all the elements of your life mm-hmm. and you can't change it. You can just you just exist in one part of it or another. Right. And the or just the idea on a I guess on a more universal level of 
time and whether it's linear or whether you have, you know, we've talked about it in previous books. I guess it's funny you mentioned 100 Years of Solitude earlier because we have a lot of like cyclical time yeah. throughout the generations where we have things that sort of happen every time within these these groups of people. And I, I do believe in a lot of ways that how we perceive time and the events that happen to us are governed by actions and actions tend to beget actions generationally. Mm-hmm. So if you have a group of people that do something, then their offspring are probably going to do something similar and they're on and their yep. forth. And yep. so it yep. can seem in a lot of ways that history is repeating itself. But I think that is a more interesting view of it than just saying like, well, here's point A, point D, and here's all your, here's your whole timeline. And you're kind of just, you exist at one point and you don't really, you can't really change anything about it. But right. yeah, I mean, the aliens don't have the, the greatest of wisdom. I, well, but I say that and I'm, I'm going to contradict myself okay, in, cool. in, in some way, but cause on, on page 19 where they talk about the death thing and I'm, I'm going to read like two giant things. So okay. like, hang I'm buckling. Let's yeah. go. So page 19, they say the most important thing I, uh, I learned on, uh, tr- Tralfalmador Tralfalmador. Was, was that when a person dies, he only appears to die. He's still very much alive in the past. So it is very silly for people to cry at his funeral. All moments, past, present, and future, have always ex- existed, always will exist. The aliens can look at all the different uh, moments just the way we can look at a stretch of Rocky Mountains, for instance. They can see how permanent all the moments are, and they can look at any moment that interests them. It is just an illusion we have here on Earth that one moment follows another, um, one like beads on a string, that one moment is gone, and it is gone forever. When a... Uh, T alien thing sees a corpse. All he, all he, I'm just getting. We need like a thing. Just Boop. you say it every time. Just a button yep. that I hit. Tralfamadorian. When Tralfamadorian. a Tralfamadorian. Tralfamadorian. <laughs> Last paragraph. I promise. Yeah. When a Tralfamadorian sees a corpse, all he thinks is that the dead person is in bad condition in that particular moment, but that the same person is just fine in plenty of other moments. Now, when I myself hear that somebody is dead, I simply shrug and say uh, what the trial Midorian say about dead people, which is so, so it goes, goes. Uh, which did that annoy you at all? The no. So it goes. I, no. I, I, I kind of found that humorous. It just, yeah, it was just a little tick at a lot of different points. But uh, this got me thinking about something uh, that I, I read the other day. A, a friend of mine had somebody they knew uh, passed away. And she posted um, this this thing that I've I've never heard before. Um, so I found this on on NPR. Um, this, a gentleman named uh, Aaron Freeman was was on a show called All Things Considered. And uh, so this is pretty lengthy too. But uh, this this affected me, um, you know. And and then when I read this uh, a few weeks later, I just I thought it was really interesting. And these these go sort of hand in hand as concepts at least of how we understand science today so this goes uh, Aaron Freeman says you want a physicist to speak at your funeral you want the physicist to talk to your grieving family about the conservation of energy so they will understand that your energy has not died you want the physicist to remind your sobbing mother about the first law of thermodynamics that no energy gets created in the universe and none is destroyed You want your mother to know all your energy, every vibration, every BTU of heat, every wave of every particle that is ever beloved, uh, sorry, that that was her beloved child remains with her in this world. 
You want the physicist to tell your weeping father that amid energies of the cosmos, you gave as good as you got. And at one point, you'd hope that the physicist would step down from the pulpit and walk to your broken-hearted spouse there in the pew and tell him that all the photons that ever bounced off your face, all the particles whose path were interrupted by your smile, by the touch of your hair, hundreds of trillions of particles have raced off like children, their ways forever changed by you. And as your window rocks in the arms of your, I'm sorry, as your widow rocks in the arms of a loving family, may the physicist let her know that all the photons that bounced from you were gathered in particle detectors that are her eyes, that those photons created within her constellations of electromagnetically charged neurons whose energy will go on forever. And the physicists will remind the congregation of how much of all of our energy is given off as heat. There may be a few fanning themselves with their programs as he says it. And he will tell them that uh, the warmth that flowed through you in life is still here, still part of what we are, even as we mourn, um, continue, even as we who mourn, continue the heat of our own lives. And you'll want the physicist to explain to those who loved you uh, that they need not have faith. Indeed, they should not have faith. Uh, let them know that they can measure, that scientists have measured precisely the conservation of energy and found it accurate, verifiable, and consistent across space and time. You can hope your family will examine the evidence and satisfy themselves that science is sound and that they'll be comforted to know your energy is still around. According to the law of conservation of energy, not a bit of you is gone. You're just less orderly. Uh, so I, I ran across that and she sort of, she posted on, on Instagram, you know, just some pictures, I guess. And, and that statement, and it just, it struck me like, yeah. you know, we, we know, we know these, these laws, right. And we do feel like loss is, is finite. And, uh, you know, whether that's loss of somebody you care about loss of, you know, in, in some instances of this book, um, you know, your own humanity, um, yeah you know, those things are still there and you still struggle with them through, you know, your own memories, your own personality that's developed as, as a result. And yeah, I just, I, when I was, when I read that part, I just, I wanted to, to bring that to the podcast. Sure. It's like the, but any, any thoughts about, <laughs> about either of those bits of, uh, sort of concepts, I guess. Of death well, or, or of just, just the idea of how you picture a being yeah i mean after death or in the process thereof yeah i mean it's interesting i think that from a purely from a purely scientific standpoint yeah obviously the you know the the physicist take is it's it's interesting and it is true that it's you know you're never really gone in a sense of your physical presence you know it it whether it's affected others or whether you know your existence from a sheer elemental level you know you're never truly really gone yeah um, you know i don't think that's the the absolute most like comforting thing which is i think not necessarily the point yeah uh, because a lot of people i feel like when confronted with death the comforting thing is to think that there's something beyond that there is no you know kind of finiteness right to death that you know whether or not it's your consciousness whether or not it's your soul whether or not you're reincarnated you know whatever spiritual doctrine you believe in most tend to prescribe to some idea of 
persistence beyond death because, you know, the idea of the finite, you know, uh, the finiteness of existence, although said in, you know, a, a pretty interesting and moving way, yeah. can be made... Um, can be made comforting and made even like empowering. Uh, it still is kind of scary to think about, you know, yeah. that, because yes, you know, you're now, you're, you're, you're still here, but in less orderly fashion. Right. Um, it's just, are you still, you're not still you though, right? right? Like all of the things that sort of add up all of these elements and these particles and photons and everything that comes together, um, not really photons. You're not made up of photons. Photons would <laughs> reflect off of you from light, but you get what I'm saying. All these yeah. elements and parts of you, you know, they have to be collected in a very specific way in order to kind of make you, you, cause right. you change one thing, you're somebody completely different. So, yep. um, I, I prefer in this instance, I prefer the alien one because the idea of viewing it more as a timeline that it says, well, you know, if somebody is dead, but, you know, they're still alive. If you, if you value all bits of a time of, you know, if you look at a linear progression of time, it seems like as human beings, we really, if you're talking about the, the order in which if you had to say, all right, you know, a pie graph for how we value time, I'd Mm -hmm. say like 60% present, 35% future, 5% past. Because I feel most people are like, well, past is past. Like, you know, yeah. it's, I can learn from it, but I can't really accept it. And I don't think that's necessarily fair. Um, obviously, people are more concerned about the present or they're more mindful of the present because, yeah. you know, you're experiencing it. I hit this lamp. It's in the present. I'm thinking about that. Right. You know, I'm at the podcast right now. It's less, you know, what I'm going to be doing six hours from now is less important in kind of my mental thought. And I don't think as human beings, we're well equipped to kind of give each period of time like it's 33.33333 repeating <laughs> yeah. percent but you know when you experience loss or when you experience death it is interesting to 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 give that those are like the only moments i feel like in people's lives that you open up to a higher percentage of 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 giving past its due right because yeah. you, then you take time to go back and you think about all these instances and you think about experiences and you think about people in your lives or even your own experiences, if it's sure. not like a physical loss of somebody else, but, you know, kind of just moving on into a new step in your life and yeah. thinking about kind of the things that you've experienced up until that point. So it, you know, it does kind of, for me at least, that does kind of soften the edge of loss by having that that mindset of, well, you know, they're not going to be in the future anymore. Or this is not going to be in the future anymore or in the present, but it's, it's forever in the past. It's forever in this, you know, right. it's never to be taken away. It existed. It's, it's something that is immutable, unchangeable, and I'll forever have it so long as I live. Yeah. And that's to me, that is kind of empowering in its own way in, in just sort of viewing that it's not something I can grab out right now and hold. It's not something right. that I can touch and feel, but it's still there. Yeah. It hasn't gone anywhere. It will never go anywhere. It's still there. Yeah. So we can't end the podcast on on that note. And I have a lot of like little random things. We're going that, rapid like, fire? We never, yeah. So I know I got, that you have I things. got one rapid fire. Okay. okay. If you had to... <laughs> If you had, if you're writing, rewriting this book, or if you're writing a book about loss, and all of a sudden you have a crazy uh, alien race injected into it, yes. describe to me your aliens. Uh, 
I would make my aliens like amorphous blobs, like uh, like flubber. Okay, like yeah, they're just yeah. Ryan, follow me. Yeah, as they they roll along or shuttle along. Flubber aliens. What about you? Mine would be completely invisible. They would just be voices in your head, and then you would truly be crazy. That is terrifying. It's a cop out. That is actually terrifying. Invisible aliens. Uh, so incomprehensible aliens. Wait, so they they would talk so, to you in their own language okay. and not translate. So the thing I'm thinking of, way way back, you know, Cosmos, the, yeah, the Carl Sagan, yeah. not the Neil deGrasse Tyson one, which was okay, but I prefer the Carl Sagan one. I remember there was this episode on the fourth dimension. And he was talking about the Tesseract, and he was trying to like visualize it, like if you had a two dimensional space and a being from the third dimension tried to like interact with that space. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be like if you like had a banana and you put it in this two dimensional space, they would just get like this little, you know, this slice like, of it, the little slice of yeah. it. They wouldn't understand. Or if, if somebody from a third dimension were to grab a two dimensional something from two and lift it out, then it would, he would look to disappear. So the idea of if yeah. there's like a fourth dimensional being, it would be kind of like incomprehensible to us. So the idea yeah. of aliens just being kind of like, a sound or a feeling or this sort of invisible force that you can't interact with, I think would be a wholly accurate and honest depiction of something from a fourth dimension. Yeah. Unless they chose somehow to interact with you on your lower dimension. So you, we, you could never elevate yourself to theirs. Maybe, but that would be like you saying, okay, Ryan interact. I mean, you could draw, I suppose, but interact with the second dimension. But technically that's still three put dimensions. yourself into the yeah. second dimension. Yeah. It's impossible. Oh, good. Good point. Yeah. Transmit yourself into the second dimension. All right. It'd be difficult. It would be to, to say, okay, well I can put my face. Now they just get a little bit of your, now you can't really go from a three dimension to. Yeah. I don't know. I want to noodle this one around. All right. Uh, there are some people, there's for some reason in our like tags for this one, we should put just like, man, if you're about to just get really high. I'm going to put some weird tags. If you're about to get really high, fun. just fast forward to like three quarters yeah. through the episode and we start talking about dimensions and time and just sit back and enjoy. It would be pretty funny. Put uh, some Pink Floyd on. Yes or no. Should bitchy Fliberty Gibbet be an everyday insult? Absolutely. Uh, I agree. I, th- I think that has been well underserved. Uh, is the tiny fur-lined coat that Pilgrim gets and the Germans laugh at actually a good war bit, or was it a stupid joke and the Germans just laughed at nothing? Uh, I don't know, man. At that point in the war, yeah, probably just a stupid bit. Yeah, I... I, I struggled to to find the humor in that, other than thinking about like some of our very tall friends who might be a bit uncoordinated, putting on like a child's jacket, yeah, a la uh, David Spade and uh, and Chris Farley. Chris Farley, thank you, fat man in a little coat. Yes, uh, it got it got a little funny. Uh, on page ninety one, the narrator brings himself into the thing oh, okay. where he's talking about shitting his brains out. And he's like, that was me. I did. I did that. <laughs> did you laugh out loud? He did that a couple that times, kind of, right? Yeah. He did but, a couple little like interjections where it's, it's Vonnegut or our but, narrator. But he literally like the weirdest part of the book where like everybody's losing me, their, the losing their stuff. He's like, 
I, you know, shit my brains out. He's like, I, uh, the guy goes, uh, there it goes. Uh, and he goes, that was me. I said that. <laughs> like, did you laugh at that? Uh, it was just strange. I don't know if I had an audible chuckle or not. To I, had, that. I just thought it was strange. I had a good, uh, I had a good chuckle. Uh, and there's still so much more in this, uh, in this book. I mean, just like the, like human perspective of time and all that kind of stuff we could, uh, we could talk about for sure. But I do want a definitive answer and not a thesis on, okay. Do we ultimately have some sort of destiny or fate that guides everything or is everything just free will and every little micro decision we make impacts the the outcome. You cannot say that it is some combination of both. Um, I don't think it's some combination of both because I don't. I think they're so opposite ideas. I don't think they can both exist. I don't think they can cohabitate the same space. I think if you believe that things are out in front of you, then then or that there are certain things that you're destined for, then it's hard to say. It's hard to to balance that with the idea that at any moment in time, your choice of what you're doing in your life can change. I'm a very big proponent of the free will, uh, of the idea of free will. I don't think fate is something that exists. I think that it's an idea that is made in order to allow people the idea of, of feeling better about the situations maybe they're in, the circumstances and kind of where their life has led or the choices or things like that, because the idea truly, the idea of true free will of understanding that at any moment in time, any single individual person can act in any unpredictable way that they choose that, you know, meets to whatever whims that they feel. Um, that's terrifying. Yeah. It's terrifying. It really is when you understand a lot of like how reliable or, or how much you rely on kind of infrastructure or individuals or support groups yeah. or anything like that, that any one person can act in such a un unbridled, you know, whatever way they choose. Now, granted, most people kind of have a framework for the decisions that they make and they tend to act rationally, but you know, somehow. yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm free will. I agree. I think I, I would even go so far as to say that anybody who earnestly believes in fate or destiny is exhibiting the symptoms of either psychosis or insecurity or both. Yeah. Or, or, or both. I don't know. Some, I, you know, I, again, I, I can understand how in this relating back to the book, how trauma and stress and, and things of that nature to a high degree can make it feel like you just sort of resign yourself to your fate. Yeah. If you get to that point, but I don't think that that's necessarily a healthy view from the get go. No, for sure. Have. For sure. Um, all right, we need to get to our ratings. Let's get to our ratings. You go first. It's your book. Uh, top shelf. Matter of fact, I would I would put this in my top three of books we've read. Wow. In the entire podcast. Wait, what's the, what what are the other two? Uh, definitely, uh, Gentleman in Moscow is okay. still number one, and I, I struggle with this one a little bit. I like the I like all the light from like a just like fiction novel standpoint. Sure. I liked Steppenwolf from all of the weird, weird surrealist shit. Yeah, that like made me think about my own life. So it's somewhere okay. in that like two to three range. Top shelf. Okay. Yeah. The one again, the one thing for me with this book that keeps it from being really, really high for me is the is just not having that 
connectivity to our protagonist that we yeah. that I'm kind of used to in these stories. It still is top shelf for me though, but probably middle of the pack towards the bottom of the the top shelf books for me. That's but fair. definitely, you know, I recommend it to uh a lot of people, especially ones who read it in high school, be like, go back, reread it again. Yeah. As, a, as you'll an be adult. To, maybe you you'll s- be able to get over the weird, wacky, you know, kind of elements of it. Yeah, when you've seen some shit, then you should uh, you should read this book when again. You've seen some shit. So, uh, all right. So we have a whole month. I am so excited that we the the format of our, our of our show has changed or slowed down. It hasn't really changed, but yeah. it's slowed down so that we get a little bit more time to digest because it open up it it opens up such a larger array of books that we can get into because I've had so many books that have kind of been on the maybe read list but there's just yeah. no way you know 600 pages and a pretty substantive challenging read you know not super easy type reads you can't really pull that off in two weeks at least not giving it its due but yeah we have a whole month to unpack this one and it's going to be a fun one to unpack and our next book is going to be the savage detectives by roberto bolaño Ooh. So, written in 1998, I believe. It wasn't translated into English until 2007. Okay. And I want to say he's deceased, but I I think he passed away before this got translated. I mean, we'll, okay. we'll, okay. we'll know next episode. Yeah. I, I, he either passed away before this was translated into English or shortly thereafter. But, um, yeah, I mean, kind of maybe not entirely as into the mystical surrealism realism kind yeah. of vein as Marquez, but we do get a lot of kind of weird from, from what I gather and I've read a little bit of it so far, but from what I gather, having read about it, we get a, we get kind of this weird sort of realism to it or, or surrealism to it. And the gist of it is we kind of have these roving gangs of uh, like poets that are kind of, roaming across in like 70s in the in central and south america it's it's okay. a mess I, i've heard it being quoted as it's 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 like don quixote but with these uh, visceral they call themselves the visceral realists and they kind of uh ascribe or adore poetry as like this sort of vehicle for human existence or something it's it's weird it's a weird book and i'm super excited about it i, can't, and I know you're gonna like I can't, it i can't wait a band of poets you 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 have yeah. my heart a, there a roving gang of poets yeah. yeah so the savage detectives roberto bolaño super excited about it that's gonna be our july book yes and have you uh, thought about have you thought about what's coming in august or are we I, gonna pump the brakes on that i am going to announce my book before we get to this one because i want to have that one that one queued up you know, the other thing we've got going on, obviously, is, you know, everybody's out for the summer, you know, that's in school and, you know, teaches and, and all that kind of stuff. So I do want to get that that third book out there so that people who want to read like live with us um, can do. But lucky for us, we have 30 other books that if you finish a book we're reading live uh, early, you can go pick one of our other uh, back catalog. and Yeah. And read along that way. So we have like a little summer book club thing going exactly. on. Go back, check out, pick out some good ones from uh, from season one. I'm officially dubbing this You're, now season. We've kicked right, off we'll season it. two. We'll do it. But uh, yeah, go back and check out some uh, some season one books while you uh, maybe wait if, if this doesn't seem like it's going to be your cup of tea. But man, I'm excited about this book. I really am. And this episode is going to come out July 1st. The Yeah, Savage Detectives. Yep. 
So, so that is uh, that is going to be your due date for, yeah. f- for finishing the that Savage is, Detectives. Yeah, again, just a reminder for our longtime listeners, or you know, everyone who's been with us for a year. You say so that far. mockingly, but there are a whole there are, fuck ton no, of there them are, out there. There are. I'm not saying it mockingly. <laughs> I it's it's you know it amazes me. I I go in and I check our SoundCloud regularly, and it's just you know. Granted, we're not getting you know ten thousand listens or anything like right, that. Right, right. I never expected, I never expected the kind of listenership that we've gotten, and yeah. especially with how widespread it is. Yeah, it's weird to have a global audience. Yeah, it is. So, give us a shout out. On, yeah, on 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 Twitter at uh, Better Bookshelf or check us out at BetterTheBookshelf.com if you want to get in touch with us. But I'm I am excited. I'm, yes. I'm excited about our books. Oh, sorry. But yes, so for those of you who've been listening for a while now, and if you missed last episode, we are going removing we're changing the format up slightly. Instead of doing two books a month, we're going back to one book a month in order to give you guys more time, give us more time, and allow us to be a little bit more creative with our uh with our book selections. Allow us a little bit more time to digest to get into things like this one. Uh, may even need a supplementary episode, depending Ooh. on how we feel after recording uh, our one episode. So it yeah. might be something we release something on the first, and then maybe a week or two later have a supplementary on this while we're still reading another book or something like that. It, we, it gives us a little bit more time to do yeah. crazy things like that. Exactly. And that is our episode for this time. So it goes. Yeah.